0: Good morning. Uh, we're going to continue on from last week for those of you that were here and those of you that weren't. It's online. And uh, Jonathan's gotten pretty good with that. He's got the multi screen thing going so you can get the notes and speaking at the same time. Um, so this week we're going to talk about Fallen Gates. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus' teaching on the powers of darkness. We're going to look at Matthew 16 and 17 in particular. Um, We're going to work our way there out of last week's kind of ancient aliens week we did. um, We looked into some of the crazier stuff and showed how uh, there's a version of it that's not all new agey and crazy. um, While still keeping the supernatural um, and not divorcing the supernatural from the Bible, which is what it seems the majority of America has done. Uh, last week, we made a case for a supernatural reading of Genesis 6. We looked at the rebuttals um, and showed how none of them made sense, and then we looked at the context of the New Testament. We brought in the passages from uh, the, two, the two Peters and Jude, um, how it gives confirmation to the source material that was presented in Enoch. We looked at a little bit of Enoch. Um, We noted that the biblical and Jewish version of the story is much different than the versions around the rest of Mesopotamia at the time, talking about the story of the the angels that come down, and spiritual beings that come down in Genesis 6 and produce the Nephilim and the whole storyline, what happens with those spirits. Um, we came to the theory that the unclean bastard are mixed spirits that we see in the New Testament, according to Second Temple Judaism and just different passages in the Old Testament, which we'll point to today. Um, this week we're going to look at what becomes of the Nephilim. We're going to talk a little bit about the idea of cosmic geography and what that looks like in the Bible, uh, how that interacts, the physical realm interacting with the spiritual realm over top of it, and people just call it cosmic geography. It sounds crazy. That's just what they call it. But we, we see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. Um, how did Jesus handle these different spirits? And where did Jesus journey and why? And we're going to look at, again, Matthew 16 and 17. Um, we left off last week with uh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, Genesis 6-4, and also afterwards. We're going to focus on the afterward part today. Um, and there's three theories, speculations, based on what happens with these... Nephilim afterwards. Um, Some believe that some more spiritual beings fell and created more of these giant demon people. And then the theory is that the Bible says that Noah was pure and he was righteous for his generation. Um, But there's the possibility that his wife or his son's wives carried the genes. And then there's also people that say the flood was regional in nature, only covering the Middle East. Those are all theories. There's nothing in the Bible to say, one way or the other, so I don't spend much time on it. Either way, we have more giants when we get them in Genesis fifteen thirteen. Um, and then the Lord said to Abram. So we've already we're, we're past Babel. Uh, the Lord said to Abram, "Know for certain that your offspring or offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there." Talking about Egypt, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good, in good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's kind of a weird passage in Genesis. Um, God's going to bring them back. He brings them, we have the Exodus, and they come back into the land they are to possess. And when they come to the land that they are possessed, he is specifically worried about dealing with the Amorites. And uh, Amos 2.9 gives us a little information on who the Amorites were. And they are some of uh, this cross-references back to what we're going to get into here too. But even then they're talking about, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. So purposefully, God back, knew what was going to happen to the nation of Israel, Um, And Deuteronomy was going to bring them back in the land and they needed to come back into this land and they had to possess this land that will be dominated by these giants. Um, Deuteronomy, Joshua comes up with more of the giant clans. Uh, The Raphaim are the ones we want to look at. Remember, we looked at that as being part of the old uh, Hebrew concept for demons and those spirits of darkness. Um, But Raphaim means, you can translate it giants or shades in Hebrew. It's just a weird thing, but um, the Rephaim need to be dealt with. All five of these tribes need to be dealt with. And uh, he actually, if you read through Genesis and then you get into to Exodus, we kind of always wonder what happened with Esau and Lot. Um, Esau and Lot both get lands situated in the Promised Land and they're there and actually if you read into Deuteronomy, it says that um, Lot and Esau dealt with some of these giant clans. So it was kind of God still had a purpose for Esau, still had a purpose for Lot, and all their descendants, and their descendants came in and wiped out areas of these giant clans. Um, just going through really quickly, I don't know how good you can see that. I don't know if this is the one with the laser pointer. It is. What's the laser pointer button. Oh, oh, oh. All right, so when you find maps of Israel, you always have to figure out where the map of Israel, what time it was from. This is from the time when they're coming back into the promised land, and they're going to divide things up here, and they started to divide things up. Um, So today we're going to talk a lot about Bashan, which is what would be current day Golan Heights. It's this region right here. Um, Mount Hermon is right there and the tribe of Dan gets sent up there. Uh, That's the region that we're looking at. That is the region that Joshua's coming into to finish off the conquests. So they've kind of worked their way back up north. The first, we we'd talk about King Sidon in a previous slide, who was supposed to be a king of the Amorites. I believe that he was. And... uh, God ended up hardening his heart, which is bringing us back to, like, God hardening the heart of Pharaoh when he's getting ready to go deal with Pharaoh. Um, But the next one we talk about is Og, and Og is an interesting individual. Because Og is living up in Bashan, which is that region we just talked about. And so it says, and this is still with Moses with them, And we turned and went up to the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, Bashan, came out, and he and all his people to battle at he But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people in his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. And so the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at the time. There was not a city that we did not take from them, 60 cities, the whole region of Argab, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All of these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a very many unwalled villages, and we devoted them to destruction. And as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children, and all the livestock and the spoil they kept. And so we took the land at the time of those two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon, the Sidonians call Mart, and it just says a couple different names that the people living there at the time called the Mount. All the cities of the table land in Gilead and all Bashan, and just does more. But then you get to the interesting part. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. It is not in Rabah of the, Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. It was a giant bed. It was a giant iron bed for this giant man. It ends up being like 14 feet long and fortified. And this Og character. Um, Agimaius, also plays a role in, uh, we talked a little bit about Greek mythology. Uh, He shows up in Greek mythology too. They refer to him, Hebrews called him Og. He had a longer name. Um, Anyway, they go up and they take care of Og. They take care of what they say is the last of the, the Raphaim. Um, the meaning of Raphaim is disputed at times. We see them as giants in the Old Testament, but the root word is interesting. Most scholars now believe it to be from the Ugaritic uh, language, meaning dead spirit kings. Um, Ugaritic, just as a reminder, Ugaritic is the language of the Canaanites. So it shares a lot of the same stuff as Hebrew. Uh, some of the language just equally goes back and forth. Um, the Bible also references them as spirits in Sheol and this begins to paint a picture of the leftover Nephilim spirits without needing to really extract anything from First Enoch so the idea is you had all these giant tribes up north their spirits are remaining on the earth in a land that they say is the land of like where you get to Sheol to hell just a strange territory Um, not really going to get into this But it gets into the meaning of Bashan, and it talks about how the giants of the north believed that this region was actually like the gateway to hell. And the reason that's important, because we're going to get to Matthew 16 here, um, the Canaanites would worship Baal up there, and it was the place for Baal. Um, It's also a place where we find this. We get more ancient alien-type stuff, which we already said there's no ancient aliens. But stuff that they threw on TV to make you get all wondering about things. This is actually um, in the Golan Heights and was discovered not super long ago, and it's always just kind of wigged people out because if you look at, give you an idea in size, that's that's like a large cow. So you have all of these basalt rings around it, and it predates the pyramids. Um, it's roughly about the same age as Stonehenge. Just interesting that that exists in the promised land, and I didn't know that from previous people. Happens to be the region where all these giants supposedly lived, and the locals refer to it as the wheel of spirits or the wheel of giants. Um, So, I'm going to skip through Isaiah 14. Let's talk a little bit about land. Um, We'll talk about the idea of cosmic geography, not the best term for it. But spiritual beings have jurisdiction. We talked about principalities and powers two weeks ago. We talked about where we believe principalities and powers come from and how they are set up among the nations. Um, but Yahweh chooses Israel as his own. Um, and land kind of owned by the powers. Um, we'll talk about Naaman real quick because this is a weird oddity in the Old Testament too. If anybody remembers Sunday school court stories about Naaman, Naaman was a Syrian general who served the king, and he developed leprosy, and all of the Syrian people, nobody could do anything for Naaman. And so Naaman, there happened to be a Hebrew girl that worked in one of the households and said, if you go down to Israel and you talk with, uh, talk with our prophet, you can be healed. Uh, we serve a healing God. And so Naaman goes down, and he asked, like, how much do I have to pay? What do I need to do to be healed? And, God, and uh, the prophet says, go dip uh, seven times in the river and come out. And so the general goes, and he's like, this seems kind of crazy, but I came all this way. He goes, he dips seven times, and he comes out healed. And he goes back. And then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came, and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but it is Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon which is who is, his king is worshiping, um, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Raman. When I, buy myself, when I bow myself in the house of Raman, the Lord pardoned your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. So the idea here, he knows now that Yahweh is the true God. He's from the Syrian region. He doesn't want to go back and worship Raman. He doesn't want to go with his king, but he knows that he's going to have to. And he's saying, listen, I need forgiveness for this. I just want you to know that I want to worship Yahweh. And that's where the two loads of uh, basically dirt, soil, from Yahweh's turf, which is Israel, he's going to take it back, and then he's going to worship on Yahweh's turf. Just how it kind of worked. Um, The idea that the land belongs to the spiritual overbeens. And this is just one of the weird examples of a guy that found that, you know what, Yahweh's the real deal. He is God. And uh, he takes it back so that he can worship on Yahweh's turf. The other, the other time we see this, right from Samuel also, is uh, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God. They brought it, to, brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon is this giant idol. One of, the, one of the false gods living in other nations, ruling the nations there. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and they propped him back up in place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And that is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The idea was there was a battle of God there. And where Dagon fell, because he was defeated, that is Yahweh's turf, that little strip. And so they would walk around it in order to get back into the temple and do what they needed to do. And that's kind of what that story is. So the power of Yahweh, again... Um, just kind of, there's, and there's more examples of this in the Old Testament with the idea of turf and areas and control. And then Paul will get into principalities and powers. Daniel talks about the Prince of Greece, the Prince of Persia, the battling over certain areas. Um, but this is just what we need as a setup for where we're going. Getting to Jesus. We're going to go back to Bashan, that region in the north by Mount Hermon. Uh, Bishan is the Hebrew translation for batin and Ugaritic, meaning it is the place of the serpent or the dragon. So this whole area has always been, to a lot of the ancients, it's kind of a spooky place. It's an evil place. Um, Caesarea Philippi was built at the foot of Mount Hermon. Um, that's what it was called in Jesus' time. It had other names before that. Uh, It was also one of the headwater sources for the Jordan River, so it's coming out of the mountains, and that's where the Jordan flows down through Israel. Um, And uh, Hermon derives from the word uh, Hiram, which means to devote to destruction. So the mountain means that which God has devoted to destruction. Um, Hiram is the word that's used back when they're conquering the giant clans, and God is saying you wipe them all out man, woman, and child, and you're like, whoa, Yahweh, uh, genocide. But the idea is that you had to wipe out that line of people, so it means to devote to destruction. The mountain actually means that. Um, historically, it's the place where, according to Enoch, the watchers made their oath in secret. Um, it's the land of the Raphaim, the Canaanite place for the entrance to the underworld. It's called, uh, they called it the gates of the underworld. Um, which for us would be the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. Um, the apostate king Jeroboam built an idolatrous worship center there, copying Baal worship. He was one of the bad kings during the time um, before exile, and he goes up there and he joins with the Baal cult and continues to, to worship Baal there instead of Yahweh. Um, there's at least 14 temples in the area right away that worship Baal. Um, it was called, The area was called Panaeus by the Greeks, it was the birthplace of Pan. If you know Greek mythology, we'll talk about Pan here in a bit. And then it also ends up getting um, a large temple built to commemorate Caesar. So all of this is like in one place. All this different worshiping of, you know, worshiping of the Roman civil servants, like Caesar's God. So they're worshiping Caesar there. They're worshiping Pan there. You've got all their Baal worship there. This is all in one town. Um, that's right there at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Again, here's a, here's a map, and this time it's, got, it's, it's caught up to the time of Jesus. So by this time, um, it's actually Gentile territory. Israel no longer has control of it at this time. And so you have Caesarea Philippi right there. So you have the Sea of Galilee down here and uh, Caesarea Philippi. And so, you know, what is Jesus doing on Gentile turf? What's he going to do? Um, that's where it's located. Talk a little bit about Baal, because we mentioned Baal before. Uh, Baal is considered to scholars to be the Old Testament counterpart to the devil. Um, in Ugaritic, one of Baal's titles is Baal Zabul Zars, which is Prince of Baal of the Underworld, from which the New Testament Beelzebub and uh, Beelzebub derive. So when we see Beelzebub or Beelzebul, they're they're talking about Baal. And some people know a little bit about Baal worship. A lot of killing of infants, um, a lot of sacrificing of babies, and you would get Baal's blessing and you would just continue to have all this bloodshed. Um, the next thing we had talked about was Pan, just to get into Pan a little bit. Pan was a satyr in Greek mythology, but he was also, he was a god in that form, and uh a lot of farming associated with him, but a lot of just, uh, he's just known for crazy sexual lust. And so also where they're, this place where they're sacrificing babies, they're also indulging in all of this sexual wickedness. Um, some of the beliefs with Pan, there was, there was at times at these temples, bestiality, orgies, different things like that. So like this is just, just a nasty place. Um, the word panic actually derives from his name. And we use when we talk about panicking and stuff. So that kind of gives you the idea and the spirit behind this God. So uh, lots of Baal worship up there, lots of worshiping Pan right there at Caesarea Philippi. Um, Let's get to Matthew 16. So when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So going back up to the top, he's asking them, who do you think I am? And Simon comes up with the right answer, not of his own, uh, not of his own intelligence, but Jesus said yes. And so here's where we get into this passage that the Catholics like to say that, that Peter Peter is the rock. Um, and that you get Peter is the first pope. And that the binding and loosing actually has to do with uh, the keys of heaven they took as the literal, you get to help determine who goes to heaven in Catholicism. And the binding and loosing actually has to do with uh, people being able to enter or not enter based on the authority given to Peter. So this is actually the verse where all of that, Catholicism comes from. Um, We, of course, don't read it that way. Um, Some people say that the rock is is something else, Um, but they're at the mount of they're at the foot of Mount Hermon. That's a large rock right in front of them um, in Caesarea Philippi, and um, he's talking about the gates of hell. And they're literally at the place where the nation considers the gates of hell to be. So he's, kinda, he's bringing it here. He's coming here to make a point. He's up in the middle of Gentile territory. Don't know why. You know, he's, he's doing his Israeli tour first, and he's healing, and he's, and he's doing all this stuff for the Jews. And then he takes his disciples up here for a couple things. And I want to say that the reason he comes up here for a couple things is to engage in direct spiritual warfare and to set up what's coming for the church. And uh, that's how I always thought the gates of hell would be. You know, like the big dark structures, the demons in back, ready to come out and attack. And what I like about that is that uh, the character, the the evil-looking character is the mouth of Sauron. Sauron is kind of symbolic of Satan, so it's kind of like the mouth of Satan. And Satan, the mouth comes out and he's, what he's talking, if if you've watched the movie, is he's lying to them. He's baiting them, he's trying to get them to despair and give up. And he's just kind of badgering them with things that didn't happen. And, uh, Aragorn shuts the mouth of Sauron. And uh, I just kind of always thought the gates of hell would be like that. Um, But when Jesus is talking about the gates of hell, spiritually... We're not flipping now. Okay. Spiritually and physically, this is actually what he was talking about physically. Um, That cave is where they believed... uh, Baal, prince of the underworld, would come out of, and demons would be sent from there. The spirits that he controlled. Um, the, the left picture is a depiction of uh, all of the temples at the time of Jesus. So this is this is what it looked like when when Jesus would be arriving arriving at Caesarea Philippi. Um, on the left part of that picture, you have the temple that was dedicated to worshiping Caesar. Um, kind of in front of the gates of hell. You can see the one, the cave back there. You have the temple to Pan, and then you have various temples to uh, Baal surrounding it. So when he comes to Caesarea Philippi, and he's talking to his disciples, this is literally the backdrop of him when he's talking. And uh, you have the culmination of thousands of years of worshiping false gods and demons here. And so he's approaching his disciples, um, Here, and this is, you know, what he says. He says, and I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are a defensive defensive construct. We're not supposed to be on the defensive. Spiritual warfare should not be a thing of defense. And so he says, he takes them there, all the symbolism is there. Mount Hermon is also the place where supposedly those angels made their pact to do what they did in Genesis 6. So all of this history, all of this demonic is nested here. He's on the site where people were sacrificing the instance where they were having their bestiality and their orgies, and he's telling Peter right here, this is, this is the defeat. This is what we defeat. You guys now have the keys. You have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing is 100% within the context of dealing with the demonic. This is the same language that is used in multiple Second Temple texts when talking about dealing with demons, um, and a lot how how a lot of people they kind of flesh it out a bit is is you're binding the demons and you're loosing the individual. Um, the individual is loose and when the demons are gone, the the individual can be come into the kingdom of heaven. And uh, keys of the kingdom, a lot of people believe different things about the keys of the kingdom, depending on different denominational, but That's the authority. Um, Jesus is handing out the authority right there. And he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then immediately from that passage, they begin to go up the mount for the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this, and they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Um, tradition has Mount Timor or Tabor as the place for the transfiguration, um, which is way down here. They were at Caesarea Philippi, and most scholars now think they went up Mount Hermon for the transfiguration because they're right, they're right next to Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. Um, and so, just talking about that, because some people are just, it's always Mount Tabor. Actually, when, when looking it up, Mount Tabor is, is traditional, and it actually came from, um, of all people, Constantine's mother. So when Constantine throws the Romans into Christianity, um, his mother is, from all accounts, a devout follower of Christ. She also found herself to be quite the geographer And she tried to go around and pick all the places where she thinks all this stuff happened 300 years ago. And some of them were were pretty close, and some of them were, we seem to think, are pretty lost. Um, But just the proximity is clear that he's going up this mountain, which there's just, again, thick with symbolism. He would have been passing temples of Baal all the way up. He would have been going up to where supposedly the angels fell and made their agreement to go against God, the spiritual beings. And he's going up there and he's showing himself as his true self. And just the fact that it almost seems like he's he's doing this direct assault on the kingdom right now in Matthew 16 and 17. And the other, the Gospels collaborate it. But he's making this assault on those kingdoms and he's making it known in places where everyone from that time, when they hear the story, all this stuff would not be lost on them. They would know that he's going, he's in Gentile territory He's going, he's taking on multiple religious systems that are not the correct religious systems. And he's making it known who he is to to all of them. The demons already knew. If you remember right, when we talked about the demons, they knew that he was the son of the most high. And so I, I think he's, in some ways, I think, in speculation, I think he was baiting the demonic. I think he knew that the time had come. Um, and he's going up there and he's doing this stuff. He's going right into direct territory and he's making it known. And you'll, you know, from, from Matthew 17, um, the journey just goes right to Jerusalem. So they wind through. Um, he immediately gets off the mountain. The next thing he does is he goes and he deals with more demonic at the bottom of the mountain as he's leaving. And then he goes back down to the Sea of Galilee and they're just making their way back to Jerusalem for his death. Um, yeah, so his his journey into deep Gentile territory, to a place with all of this history, all of this, I mean, he's in the the place of the serpent or the dragon, depending on the translation for Bashan. He's going up to this mountain where all this stuff happened. He is making it known that he is son of the most high and it's over. The power is there and there he's going to go and he's... He's going to die. And it says in the Gospels, too, that um, he's telling them a lot, don't tell people this, don't tell people this. Because later in the Gospels, I think it's Paul says, if the powers of darkness had known what exactly was going to happen, they would have never killed him. And um, he's making war. He's getting things set. He's making war. He is the humble servant. Here is Mount Hermon. There's the Sea of Galilee, Mount Hermon's in the background. Um, just throw it in so we have some geography context. So um, he's making it known, and he's going to go, and he's going to treat, uh, have to deal with some of the the evildoers in death. Um, psalm twenty-two is part of the messianic psalm where it talks about the death of of Christ, and there's some of it's kind of fun when you know about Bashan a little bit. Um, Psalm 22, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Uh, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me and they have pierced my hands and feet and I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So, I mean, it's clearly, it's all setting up. But the bulls of Bashan, it was a, a place where they raised a lot of cattle. But then I think they're talking about the demonic surrounding Jesus at the death. And when he's, he goes on, he talks about, oh God, why have you forsaken me? And just knowing that the darkness is all around him. And it just, to me, just adds another layer of the fact that when he's doing what he's doing on the cross, what he's enduring from the darkness so that we have complete authority over the darkness. And again, this, this kind of, the idea of the bulls and the ravening lions and the surrounding him made me think of another movie clip and so I'd like to watch another movie clip. See, I was just reading Psalm 22, and it made me kind of think of that. And, uh, you know, what, what Christ endured, endured on the cross, and his, uh, his loss of connection with the Father, and just the darkness that surrounded him. And... Similarly the, the the forces of darkness, they don't know what's going to happen in the movie, and they didn't know what was going to happen. They knew that he was son of the most high God. I mean, all of the demons knew who he was, but yet they also wanted him dead. They didn't know God's plan. and so there was much celebration with them, but then they didn't know his plan was not known to them, and uh, that's where we're going to pick up next week with the death and resurrection. And what that does to principalities, powers, and authorities, along with what he was talking about with the keys of heaven. And so, next week we'll get we'll get on that resurrection. Um, dear Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you that when you are inspiring the scriptures, when you're putting all of that content in there, that it's deep and that. If we can get a grasp of what the people writing it knew, how much we can get from that. And how much you did, and all the things that you said, and how you said many things by only saying one thing. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for that, that time where you had to separate, that time when you were surrounded by darkness and mocking. And the price that you paid, Lord, we're truly grateful. We're truly grateful that the gates of hell have fallen. So, Lord, as we as we continue to learn about this, show us what we can do to continue out those commands. Lord, we're just truly grateful. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.